is John 14, starting at verse uh, 15 to 20, and then 23 to 27. Jesus speaking here. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Continuing at verse 23. Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled and do not be afraid. I wonder whether this is a really tricky part of the creed and actually whether this is quite a tricky part of when we speak of God as Trinity. What do we mean by Holy Spirit? What, who is the Holy Spirit? What does he do? What is his role in all of this um, Christianity and Christian faith? And it's there in the creed and we're going to unpack it this evening. The creed, of course, reminds us of what we believe and it reminds us of the biggest story that we find ourselves in. And Tom's already... Um, helpfully read some of those words tonight about what it says in um, the creed itself about the Holy Spirit. Just to remind us, it says this. This is what we declare. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, and he has spoken through the prophets. So the authors of the Nicene Creed, when they gathered and when they wrestled and chiseled out these, these points, these, these key foundational truths about the Christian faith, I think they had two things in particular that they wanted to stress about the Holy Spirit, this third person of the Trinity. Two things that they were convinced needed to go into the Creed that we would carry forward as Christians for generations. The first is this. The first is that the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is fully and totally divine. It's not subordinate 
to the Father and to the Son, but is the same as the Father and the Son. That's why we have the line, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. The creed authors wanted to make this point that the Holy Spirit is utterly and completely God, equal level with the Father and the Son. We may well take that as given today, but the fact it's in the creed tells us that that hasn't always been the case. You may know from your church history that this line was actually a hugely and hotly contested issue. It eventually played a little part in the first schism of the church. This line has had huge history. A lot has been written about it. I don't have time to go into it other than to say that the creed stresses what the scriptures assert throughout, which is that the Holy Spirit is completely and fully God. And I think we have to remember that when we talk about the Holy Spirit. Because I think there can on occasion be a temptation to think that it's somehow that the Holy Spirit isn't quite the same level as the Father and the Son. That is not the case. He is to be worshipped and glorified. It is what it says in the Creed and that's because it's what it says in the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son and who with them is worshipped and glorified. Fully and totally God. It's the first thing they wanted to emphasize. And the second is that the Spirit is the one who brings life. We sang, didn't we, in our worship earlier, you give life. That is the Spirit's work. He is the Lord, the giver of life, as it says in the Creed. And it's that latter emphasis as Spirit, as as giver of life, that I want us to focus on this evening. And I think to help us do that, to help us understand the Holy Spirit and to help us work out where we go with the Holy Spirit, I think we first need to to place the Spirit within the bigger biblical narrative. So what I'm now going to try and do is um, admittedly far too brief and I will miss out loads and loads of passages and you can pull me up on that later. But I thought it would be helpful to do a very brief overview of the Spirit in the Scriptures so we can see the journey of God and the journey of the Holy Spirit within that. We're going to hop around the Bible a bit to do that, so to make it easier, the passages I'm going to refer to, almost all of them, will come up on the screen. You don't have to hop around your Bibles unless you want to. But we begin right back at the beginning. You will know this, that we begin in Genesis. This is Genesis 1. You will know these words well. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Right there, right at the beginning of everything we know, of all creation, of all created things, we find the Spirit of God hovering, tentatively waiting to bring life, hovering over those waters, ready and waiting for the word of the Father to bring and to give and to breathe out life. Before creation was created, God was there hovering, getting ready. God then speaks and we know the story. Creation comes into being and then we find ourselves over the page in our Bibles now in Genesis 2. Then the Lord formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. God literally breathes life into the first person ever created, into Adam. And what we have to note here is that the Hebrew word for breath, ruach, It's the same as the Hebrew word for spirit. They use interchangeably throughout the Bible. 
ruach, breath, spirit. So when it says that God breathed into this first being, God's spirit is breathing life literally into humanity. Ruach, spirit, breath. So at the beginning of scriptures, life is breathed into existence by the spirit. First creation and then man. But then we know where the story goes from there, don't we? In the garden with Adam and Eve, the story takes a turn for the worse and it shifts. And people begin to end up turning their backs on God. And as they turn their backs on God, they are turning their backs on the Holy Spirit, the one who is the giver of life. And then we see in the Old Testament the Holy Spirit limited in what he can do, not because he is not all-powerful, not because he is not all-powerful. The Spirit is God. That's the first part of saying this, this evening. The Spirit is, of course, totally powerful. But he's limited in what he can do because he's resisted by the people. It's what we see in the story of the Old Testament time and time again are God's people resisting his work, his ways, his life. And this consequence of our sin, of our broken relationship with God, is this pushing away of the Holy Spirit, this pushing out of ourselves the breath of life that was first breathed into ourselves. Israel, as you know, moves away from worshipping the living God, the God of the Spirit, the God of life, towards false gods, towards idols. So then what you see in the Old Testament is God's Spirit placed occasionally and at particular times on particular people. And we can think, can't we, of of a whole load of people throughout the history of God in the Old Testament who have placed upon them for a task or a purpose or a particular situation God's Spirit. So the Spirit is still active, the Spirit is still working, the Spirit is still giving life, but it's on particular people at particular times for particular ends. But throughout this period, Israel clings to this this great hope, this story that has been passed down from generation to generation, often through the prophets. And the hope is that one day, this breath of God, this Spirit of God, would again pour on all people. This is um, the prophet Joel, just one example. And afterward, and this is, this is God speaking, and afterward I will pour out my spirit on all people. Note this prophecy in the Old Testament. It's not just for one or two people now. It's not just for a few particular folk. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters, inclusive for all, will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in these days. So the prophets come along and they put forward this picture of a time when God will once again pour out this spirit, will breathe on his people again. And it won't just be exclusive anymore. It'll be for all people. And when we find ourselves in the prophets, we're coming towards the end of the Old Testament narrative. And then in our Bibles, at least, we jump to the New Testament and we find ourselves pretty quickly at the baptism of Jesus Son of God, second person of the Trinity, of course. And we find this incredible passage in Mark right at the beginning. It says this, At that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. A voice came from heaven, You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This is a beautiful picture in these verses of Mark of of Trinitarian unity, 
This is one of the glimpses we get in the scriptures into God as Trinity. The son rising from the waters, hearing the voice of the father, declaring his love for him, and the descending of the spirit like a dove. Joe mentioned the idea of a dove earlier. And if you were in Israel, an Israelite listening to this, you would have gone back immediately to the story of Noah and the dove in that story. This is steeped in their history. And this moment when Jesus is baptized and the spirit descends on him is a pivot moment for the people of Israel as it is a pivot moment for us as well, because this is the moment when God's recreation work begins in earnest. And then finally, John 20. This is now after Jesus' death and resurrection. This is Jesus to the disciples now. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. With that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. It's a very, very brief overview. I haven't even mentioned Acts and Pentecost, for instance. There are loads more references of the Spirit in Scriptures. But what I'm trying to do is paint a picture of the Spirit throughout the Scriptures because I think it helps us to understand that he's been right there from the beginning Right there from the hovering over the waters before creation was created, the Spirit was there. And then at points throughout history, God's Spirit is breathed. Breathed out. Ruach, as it was in the Hebrew. Wind is sometimes another word used to describe it. So when the creed states that the Holy Spirit is the giver of life, it is this scriptural narrative and backdrop that it is using. The Spirit is always bringing life. And of course, we also read in the Scriptures that through the resurrection of Jesus, the Son, this life-giving Spirit now lives within each of us who believe. This is Paul in Romans 8, 11, and I haven't got this one on a slide, but he writes this, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit that lives in you. The spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. This spirit that has been throughout scriptures, throughout history. This spirit who is the giver of life, who is worshipped and glorified as the Father and the Son are, is here right now within you. He is dwelling within you. We have to stop and recognize what that even means. That that spirit dwells within us. I think that is one of the most staggering things to comprehend, and we can't comprehend it. Of course we can't. But the Spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in us. So what does it mean to say that the Spirit gives life? If he is indeed the Lord, the giver of life, what does that mean outside of the narrative of Scripture Effectively, what does that mean for us today when we read it in Scripture and we read those truths and we read that he lives in us? What does it mean for him to be the giver of life? I think there are um, three things for me. And these are things that I think are, are based and come straight from Scriptures, but are things that really come from my own experience of God's Spirit. They are things that I have seen in myself They are things that I have seen in others along the way. But they are also things that are found in Scripture. The first of them is this. The Spirit reveals. 
the Spirit reveals. The first way he gives life is to reveal. He reveals Jesus to us. He reveals the love of the Father to us. And he reveals our identity to us. If you're a Christian, the reason you're a Christian is because the Spirit has been at work within you. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So all and any of us who declare Jesus Christ as Lord do so because the Spirit is is and has been at work within us. For some people, that might be that you've known God forever. There are some people I know, some friends I have, who, who have declared a faith in Jesus from the age of four, if not younger, and not just a, I kind of, you know, I believe in its good faith, but a real genuine faith that they've held since a really, really young age. Well, that is because the Spirit has been working in them and was working in them then. Then there are people like me who came to faith in my teenage years, and that was because the Spirit was working in me. Then there are others who come to faith right up to the end of their days here on earth. The reason they do is because the Spirit is working within them. The Spirit reveals God to us. It's not uncommon, is it, for people to speak um, of a spirit of revelation when they talk of the Holy Spirit. That's, in essence, what happens here. When the Spirit breathes life into us, when he pours himself into us and fills us, he reveals God the Father, he reveals Christ the Son, and by doing that, he reveals who we are as well. Because our own identity is understood when those other things are revealed to us. As the Spirit reveals who God sees us to be, we can overcome the lies that so many of us battle with. You know, when I was 15, 16 and came to faith, when the Spirit revealed to me how God saw me, it transformed me completely. I no longer believed what I thought everything else was saying was true. I no longer believed that I was worthless or pointless or didn't have a trajectory in life because the Spirit working in me revealed the Father. And as it revealed the Father, he revealed the Father's love. And then he revealed the power of Jesus within me as well. As he said to Jesus at his baptism, so he says to us, you are my son, you are my daughter, and I am delighted with you beyond measure. That's what the Spirit reveals within us, that we are his sons and daughters and that he loves us beyond measure. So that's the first thing the Spirit does. The Spirit reveals. The second thing the Spirit does is heals and liberates. We've seen, hopefully, from that little snapshot of um, kind of scriptural narrative, that this is what the Holy Spirit has been doing since before the world began. Giving life, breathing life. That's the work of the Spirit. He is, of course, the giver of life. But because of the fall, because of sin, we, we live in a world of decreation, don't we? The world is created, but then it gets decreated in a sense because of Adam and Eve and because of sin and because of the broken relationship between us and God. Well, we may live in a world of decreation, but the Spirit is all about recreation. So God creates and then we decreate, but then the Spirit breathes life and the Spirit recreates for us. And it's the Spirit that, that puts us back together in the way we were supposed to be. Again, I can, um, I can tell you stories from my life of times when I have been broken beyond measure and the Spirit has gently but beautifully and tenderly restored me. 
I can tell you stories of, of friends who have been healed emotionally, mentally, and physically by God's Spirit. And I don't tell you those things to sound trite. I don't tell you those things to make you think, gosh, good for you, but what about me? I tell you those things because I know them to be true and because I've seen them and because I firmly believe that the Spirit is the giver of life and he is a Spirit who recreates. And he recreates beautifully and tenderly and out of love, out of the love of the Father through the Son. Therefore, we have to open ourselves to allow him to do that. The narrative in the Old Testament, of course, is that the people resist the work of God. They push back against the breath of the Holy Spirit. They push back against it. But when we give time to allowing the Spirit to meet with us, when we open ourselves to him, when we, when we let him in, when we let our guards down and we let him in, then healing and liberation happens because the Spirit heals and the Spirit liberates Of course, sometimes nothing happens. Sometimes we pray for things or for situations and they do not happen. Or sometimes other things happen that we weren't even praying for and we think, hang on, how come I was praying for this God and then you ended up doing this? Sometimes we're just left with unanswered questions. I have many, many thoughts about why that is and please do ask me afterwards. I don't have time really to go into that tonight. But all I know is that I have seen time and time again people's lives transformed by being open to the Spirit because he heals and he liberates. He sets us free and he restores us. The task for us is to open ourselves up to him, to open our arms to receive from him and to let him do his work. So the Spirit reveals, the Spirit heals and liberates and finally the Spirit empowers Again, we heard a little bit about this idea earlier that the Spirit kind of makes us channels. If you read 1 Corinthians 12, Paul goes through the gift of the Spirit. I think one of the reasons he goes through that list and one of the things he's saying in that passage is that if you want to be involved in the ministry of Jesus, if you want to do what Jesus did, which is what we're called to do as his disciples, if you want to do that, then you need the gifts of the Spirit. More than that, you don't just need the gifts of the Spirit. Actually, these gifts are free. Paul says at the end of that passage, you should eagerly desire them. You don't just read the list and think, I'd be lovely if I could have the gift of prophecy, but I, you know, it hasn't happened yet. We don't read it and think, well, I'd love the gift of healing, but do you know what? You know, I asked once and it didn't happen. Paul says, eagerly desire these gifts. That's 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31. Eagerly desire them in order that you can participate in the ministry of Jesus. We don't desire the gifts of the Spirit just for our own building up. Absolutely not. We desire them to do his work. Prophecy, he says, teaching miracles, healing the gift of faith. These are, of course, all hallmarks of the ministry of Jesus. So if we want to be doing the ministry of Jesus... We need to be asking for these gifts. Eagerly desire these gifts, crave these gifts. And the thing with the Spirit is the Spirit empowers us in these gifts. They're freely available when we ask for them, when we knock on the door and say, God, I want this gift. It might not happen overnight. It might take months, it might take years of faithful prayer. But God wants to give these gifts to us. And our task is to ask for them, to eagerly desire them as Paul says. 
the Lord, the giver of life, is the way the authors of the Nicene Creed put it. It's a beautiful phrase, isn't it? It kind of sums up the Spirit for me. But what that means, well, it means the God, the Spirit is, is one who reveals. Reveals God the Father, reveals Christ the Son, and reveals, therefore, who we are. The Holy Spirit also heals and liberates, beautifully puts us back together, tenderly picks up the pieces of who we are and molds us back and recreates us because he is a spirit of recreation. And then the Spirit empowers us and empowers us to do God's work, empowers us to be his people, to be his apprentices, to be his disciples here on earth, to do the ministry that Jesus commanded us to do. Go therefore and make disciples. I'm leaving you the spirit we heard in our reading from John 14 earlier. He does that in order that we may be one with him and that we may draw others into that relationship as well. This is who the Holy Spirit is. And he has been there and he has been doing this since the very beginning. Since the first moment of scripture, we read that the spirit was hovering. And he is ready today and he is here today. He is in each of us. And he longs to fill us again afresh. One of the the things Paul says in Ephesians 5 is that we should pray to be filled with the Spirit. But you will probably have heard this before. In fact, if you were here this morning, you'll have heard it this morning. That it's, it's the tense that's written in is a continual thing. It's continue to be filled with the Spirit. It doesn't happen once and then that's it. We're continually filled with the Spirit. Which leads me to the final point, which really is this. We have to encounter the Spirit in order to get this stuff. This is all good theory, isn't it? And it's all good on paper, and we can can kind of cognitively get that, and we see it in Scripture. But to actually encounter the Holy Spirit and to be transformed by Him requires us to open ourselves up and let Him work within us. That's the thing with the Holy Spirit. That's what I've found time and time again. And believe me, I am the one who resists the work of the Spirit more than you would think. I'm very, very pushy back sometimes with it. But I have found time and time again that when I open myself to the work of the Spirit, incredible things happen. So I hope it's okay if we close by doing just that. If we close by leaving some space to respond to what the Spirit is doing.